Welcome to my podcast, Musings of a Christian Philosopher, where we talk about deep and often challenging topics of theology and philosophy. I'm your host, Adam Polstra. Let's get started. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever you happen to be listening to this. Hello. What have I had on my mind lately? Well, I have had on my mind another fallacy of churchianity. And that fallacy is, you need to forgive everyone all the time, no matter what. If they do you wrong, you have to forgive them. If, you don't, if they don't ask for repentance, you have to forgive them. Forgive, 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 because, of course, if you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. Now, is that actually what the scripture says? Some of you who are longtime Christians, churchians, perhaps a little bit, uh, would want to respond, yes, the Bible absolutely says that. Okay, well, first off, instead of going to the scripture, let's look at what happens in actual everyday life with people who practice this. Let's say that somebody has done you wrong. And not only that, but they don't give a crap. They're happy as a clam. They're living their lives every day with a smile on their faces. And they probably don't think, as many of us actually do deep down, about what they did to you and smirk and so on. It's not really the reason why they're smiling. They're just happy. They're fine. They don't believe they did you any wrong whatsoever. And let's say that it was a genuinely egregious wrong, something that cannot be denied as evil. And now let's say that, you know, you're wrestling with your resentments, you're wrestling with your grudge, you're wrestling with your anger. And then... Maybe you think to yourself, you read the scriptures, maybe you talk to people at the church and they tell you, oh, but you need to forgive if you hold on to this resentment, if you hold on to this grudge, it's going to ruin you. It's going to poison you. For you to forgive them is for you to realize that you're the one holding on to the poison, not them. Okay. Now you buy that. You buy that line. So, what is the necessary requirement for forgiving somebody? Well, many people would say that you have to, in fact, go to them and announce to them that you have forgiven them. So, let's say that you do that. You work at it, you continue pondering through and trying to process the anger and realize that it's just you poisoning you and the problem is in your heart and... You just need to forgive this person. They have, again, not sought any any repentance, any restitution. They've done nothing. They, they don't seem to care at all. They might even have forgotten that you exist at this point. And you're over there, and you're working through and working through and working through. And finally, you come to them, and you say, You know, that thing that you did to me that was so horrible and terrible, I just wanted you to know that I forgive you. And maybe you don't say it quite so snarky as that, but whatever the case, I forgive you. If the other person who has done you the great wrong does not even believe that what they did to you was wrong to begin with, in other words, they don't really have a conscience, or they believe that it's perfectly fine in society to do this and that, Maybe they're a conformist to modern-day society, and they think that it is perfectly okay to do X. 
For example, right now we have a bit of a debacle on body count with single women. Perhaps she cheated on you and you were her boyfriend or something like that. If, whatever the case, they feel completely justified in what they did, and now they have you coming up to them and telling them in all this supposed sincerity, I forgive you. You know what you just did? You completely bewildered them. You seem to be telling them that they did something wrong to you. Because... In order for you to have to forgive them, they would have had to do something wrong. Now, maybe in some cases that would wake some people up to realize, huh, I might have actually done something wrong. But generally speaking, people in that mindset are going to look at you and think, what a pompous ass. Why? Because they don't believe they did anything wrong. They have not sought any restitution. They have not sought to repent. In fact, in some cases, people who have done you great wrong, and I have experience with this one, believe themselves to be justified in doing wrong to you because they believe you did wrong to them. I've had people like this in my life. So now you have an e even an additional layer of issues. Such people... If you come to them and tell them that you forgive them, what you are in fact doing is flaming their rage even hotter. Because they believe that you are the one in the wrong. And now you come to them and say, I forgive you. Again, they're justifying whatever they might be doing, slandering you, maybe trying to damage your things, whatever it might be. Could be far worse. I forgive you. So now, basically, you've taken their mindset of believing that you did wrong, and you're telling them through your coded language of, I forgive you, in fact, you're the one in the wrong, so I have to forgive you. How arrogant does that seem to be to the other person? Is arrogance what we should be spreading as Christians? Now, what's the other requirement that is commonly spoken of? And this one, I believe, is correct when it comes to forgiveness. You have to absolve them. To forgive them is to say that they will have no negative consequences for what they did. You will not seek any vengeance. You will not seek any charges or costs upon them for doing you wrong. Now, it's not quite the same thing as saying that what they did is okay. That would be to excuse them. That's a fairly different thing. But what you are saying is that whatever they did to you, you will do nothing to them in response. Now, what does that do? Let's say that they actually accept it. In the first example, the person who doesn't believe that they've done you any wrong in the first place, they're happy, they're fine, they don't have any issues. And now you tell them, I forgive you. If they understand that, if they interpret that correctly, what that means is whatever abuse they did to you, you are not going to accrue any comp uh, consequences upon them. What does that tell them? I can do whatever I want to this idiot. This gullible, weak-willed son of a so-and-so or daughter of a so-and-so, 
I can do whatever I want. I can continue to abuse them, and because they are so committed to their forgiveness for all people, no matter what, they're just going to forgive me again. What you've just set yourself up for is repeat offenses. Or let's take the example of the resentful wrongdoer, the one who believes that you did them wrong. You come to them and say, I forgive you. And let's say, which is unlikely, that they actually receive that and believe, again, whatever wrong I have done to them, they'll forgive me. Well, guess what? The very fact that they are abusing you as a result of them thinking you've done them wrong shows they are not willing to forgive. Now, we'll come back to that a little bit later, but let's just look at that point in and of itself. They are not willing to forgive you for the wrong they think they've done, you've done to them, which is why, of course, they're trying to accrue bad things upon you. They're trying to seek vengeance for themselves. They might not be breaking laws, but they might be doing things like, you know, having a chip on their shoulder anytime you're around, calling you names, putting you down, whatever. You just came to them and you told them that everything that they're doing to you, you're not going to seek any negative consequences upon them for it. Well, okay, they still think you did them wrong, and now you've added the insult of being arrogant towards them or telling them that they're, in fact, the ones in the wrong. Well, how much more are they going to be willing to do wrong to you because you came to them with these magical words? These magical words just set you up for more hurt. Now that's looking at things on the practical scale, and there are still quite a few Christians who would say, yes, exactly, you should do that anyway. You should do that even though they're going to respond with abuse and more abuse and more abuse because that's the right thing to do. That's the biblical thing we're supposed to do. Okay, is that actually so? There are a number of verses that would seem to support such a view. So let's take a closer look at them. The primary two references to forgiveness are, of course, found in the Gospels, and we see Jesus telling them. He tells the story of a man who is indebted to his master. Quite a good sum of money, by the way. Very high. And the bill comes due. He hasn't paid. The servant comes to his master and he says essentially that he repents, that he, that is to say, that he acknowledges his wrong and he'll do whatever he can to repay. And the reason for this is, by the way, that he's being sentenced to prison, which was common in those times. You didn't pay, you were sent to prison, and you still had to pay back the debt. Pretty harsh. Today we have bankruptcy, and by the way, back then they had the year of Jubilee, but I digress. The master was going to throw him in jail. He comes, admits that he hasn't paid back the debt, promises on hands and knees that he will repay the debt. And because of the man's penitence, the master forgives him the entire debt. Pretty big deal, really, if you think about it. Now, same servant goes out, encounters a servant that owes him basically a day's wages, if I remember correctly. And... The man calls him, calls him on it. The other servant says basically exactly the same thing. I'm sorry. I know I haven't paid. I will do whatever I can to pay you. Please give me time. 
And this other servant who had just been forgiven throws him in jail, has no mercy upon him whatsoever, and so on. At the end of the story, the master hears about this altercation between his two servants, calls back the other servant, first one, and tells him that he has been unmerciful after being shown mercy. He throws him in jail until he could pay all the debt. And then Jesus says the popular line, if you do not forgive, you will not be forgiven. Okay, there's the story. Now people just take that last line among Christians and say, if you do not forgive, you will not be forgiven. Okay, what story did he just tell? Did he tell a story of somebody who had been wronged, accrued a debt, and he's just forgiving, sorry, the master just forgives the servant without any altercation, without any encounter, without any conversation of any kind, without facing him with his debt? No. The master has called his servant to him, and has informed him that he is about to face the consequences of his unpaid back debt. Then the servant seeks mercy, begs, promises that he'll pay it back if given time. He repents. He admits that what he has done is not correct. He was so supposed to. He was obviously supposed to have paid it back by now. There is a confrontation in the story. That is the circumstance under which the master forgives his servant. His servant is penitent. Then, when somebody else is also penitent to the first servant, and he is not merciful, then the proverb is finished. So, what are the circumstances under which Jesus is taking it for granted forgiveness is under? One, confrontation. Two, admittance of wrong. Three, a clear desire for restitution. The promise that they will pay the debt back. Those are the circumstances under which forgiveness is spoken of. So when Jesus is saying, forgive lest you not be forgiven, and I'm paraphrasing, is he saying through that parable that we are to forgive even if there is no confrontation and no seeking of restitution from the wrongdoer? I don't think so. That is not the story. See, what I think is that Jesus was taking it for granted that everybody already knew that was when forgiveness was opportune, when it could at least be used, when you could, as I believe it's um, not Malachi, it's the other M prophets. Uh, that's not coming to me. Anyway, where he says, uh, act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly before your God. Before your God. In order to act, uh, love mercy... Well, obviously, we have to be merciful. And when somebody else is seeking mercy, we are to love mercy. 
But what if they do not seek mercy in the first place? Okay, so having talked about that one, let's talk about the second scripture that's well known for forgiveness. It's when Peter asks, how how many times should I forgive my friend? Or I forget the example that he uses. And he says, seven times? And Jesus says, no, not seven, but 70 times seven. In fact, I tell you that if a man has done you wrong and says that he is sorry, which I assume means he really means it, you forgive him. And then if he does you wrong again this very same day and then again seeks your forgiveness, forgive him again. So 490 times. What is he saying? In my opinion, if that was in common parlance, and I can't wait to see how the Chosen does this, by the way, if they if they go to this scripture, imagine you're having this very conversation and somebody uses math, and then you basically say, ha, try 70 times 7. What are you really saying? What you're saying is the number doesn't matter. Right? A lot of it is in tone. How can you imagine somebody saying that in tone? 70 times 7, try that. You could compare it to today, somebody saying, oh, what, how many times should I let somebody off who's indebted to me? Five times? <laughs> try five times a thousand. Now, I'm not saying that's exactly what was meant here. I'm just trying to point out that the math is probably not the point in this particular scripture. Anyway, what Jesus is saying is that there should essentially be countless times that you forgive this person. Imagine you trying to count how many times you've forgiven a single person until you get to 490 and then you cut it off. How many people would just lose track? Probably just about everybody. Anyway, I'm belaboring the point. Does Jesus tell Peter that he should forgive somebody 490 times even if they don't seek repentance? No. In the very way he answers Peter's question, he formulates it once again, taking for granted that the wrongdoer has sought forgiveness. Now, there are a few other scriptures that I know Christians are going to bring up to try to argue against this point. One of them that might be brought up, but it's a little bit more on the obscure side, is the paralytic. Paralytic that Jesus healed after he had been lowered into the house from the roof, from the ceiling. At the time, most people had uh, dirt, mud, straw on their ceilings, so it was fairly easy to root, to tear through it. Anyway, he's lowered down, and the first thing that Jesus said, obviously this man seeking healing for his body, is... I forgive your sins, or your sins are forgiven. Other references similar, when the woman is cleaning his um, feet with with her hair, your sins are forgiven. But again, I reference the paralytic simply to point out that's not what he was probably looking for. Your sins are forgiven. Okay. He does that perhaps, yes, to get under the grill of the Pharisees who are right there. But... In reference to what's going on here, if Jesus is genuinely forgiving him his sins, which I have to believe is absolutely accurate, then what he has just done is really two things. He has told him, essentially, that he has done that which is required for repentance. 
he has sought forgiveness in some fashion. If the logic is to hold true, right, if we go along with my arguments, he has to be telling this man he has done the seeking for forgiveness, and because he is the Son of God, he is telling him that he has just been earmarked for heaven, right? Theologically, this has to be true, because he didn't just forgive him for something he was just doing just then. He didn't forgive him for coming through a now ruined roof. He told him, your sins are forgiven. Now, it's commonly known among Christians, at least apologists, that this is also a claim to divinity because this man had done nothing against Christ. He's telling him, your sins are forgiven, which is a claim to divinity. Any wrong he had ever done in his life has to have been done to others, not to Jesus. They never met before then, most likely. So Jesus is telling him that I am the one to whom all sins ultimately offend. And I'm telling you, you're forgiven of that. That's a claim to divinity. So again, for him to forgive him is a claim to divinity and an earmarking of heaven upon this man. Okay. How, under that context, did this man come to him for, for forgiveness in the eyes of Christ? This goes into some fairly deep theology. If we believe this, if we believe this is, that this is true, if we go along with my logic. In order for human beings to receive forgiveness for our sins and therefore be earmarked for heaven, we have to do one thing and one thing only, and this is all throughout Scripture. We have to seek God again. We have to come back and resolve the relationship. That's what all the sacrifices are meant, or that's what all the sacrifices mean in the Old Testament. It is for the restitution, the forgiveness of sins, coming back, dissolving the barrier between us and God because we've done wrong. We've ruined the relationship between us and God. We've done, this is really theology in a nutshell. It's the entirety of salvation. We've done wrong to God. We need to restore the relationship. We need to come, God, come back to God and seek restitution of the relationship which necessitates God forgiving us our wrong. And what is our wrong fundamentally? It is not seeking relationship with God in the first place. That is to say, turning away from him towards ourselves, towards the world, towards greed, whatever. So, if the paralytic has come to Christ, and there was a lot of hubbub, there was a great deal, great deal of scuttlebutt that this was the Savior, this was the Messiah. For him to have come to Christ is for him to have come to God. And maybe a part of him knew it. Jesus may have very well have known this man's heart. For Jesus to genuinely forgive him and not be lying, he has to have done something to, for, to seek forgiveness. He seeks Jesus, yes, for healing. What else was he seeking Jesus for? Comparing this to the woman who was wiping his feet with her hair, we know very well what she was seeking. Jesus points it out right in front of the Pharisees and scribes. I think there were scribes there. 
this woman, whose sins are many, has been forgiven. Did she do those wrongs to him? Had she sinned against Christ once again? No. They had probably never met. Or she was one of the ones following Jesus for a while, but suddenly, finally it hit her who this was and what she needed to do. Again, I wouldn't be too shocked to see if in The Chosen, that's Mary Magdalene. Hard to say. But she doesn't seek it in words. She seeks it in actions. And this is something I think we need to be very well aware of when it comes to administering mercy. There are more ways than just words that people seek for forgiveness. Take, for example, the child who knows that he or she has done wrong. Let's use a five-year-old girl. She's done wrong to her parents. Maybe she broke something. And she comes to her parents, maybe with some candy or something like that, or trying to be nice. A lot of parents will take that and think that she's being manipulative. In some cases, that might be true. However, in many cases, what she's actually doing is acting out the seeking for forgiveness from the parent. And what rises up in the parent is rage, because we think it's manipulative. Is that loving mercy? We've already, in so doing, accrued consequences upon the child. In other words, we have not forgiven if we respond with rage. Even if it is manipulative, you deal with the manipulation, and then you deal with the forgiveness, and whether or not they actually are willing to seek mercy. Anyways, I'm getting off into the weeds. Going back, the woman who was wiping Jesus' feet was very clearly seeking for forgiveness from the Messiah himself. The paralytic, we don't know, we're not told specifically what was in his heart, but Jesus has the same reaction. Forget the Pharisees, forget the hypocrites in the room. Jesus is looking at the heart of these people, and he's telling them that they're forgiven their sins. Interesting, isn't it? Now, another reference. Jesus is on the cross. And he turns to the people there and he says, Forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Many Christians want to make this one of those blanket state, or sorry, blanket sweep statements of forgiveness. Because again, there were people jeering at him there. There were probably Pharisees. There were people who believed that he was not who he said he was, and they were happy that he was dying. And Jesus says, Forgive them, for they know what, not what they are doing. Was Jesus forgiving the Pharisees of all of their sins in that moment? <laughs> I should hope you don't think so. Why? When, other, when other than that had he ever offered forgiveness to a Pharisee? He told them at one point that it is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. Another way of putting that is those who are aware that they are not in a good state in their relationship with God need forgiveness, not those who think that they are justified in their pride. That's what Jesus was saying if you spell it out. And of course, that's why they were probably offended, because they at some level got it. Maybe some of them. 
Jesus at one point also called them hypocrites. Is that being forgiving towards them? Is there any reference of Jesus looking at a Pharisee and telling him that he forgives them for their sins? The Pharisees never sought forgiveness because they never identified that what they were doing was sinful. Jesus hammered them with that fact over and over again, trying to point out to them that they were arrogant, that they were not helping the needy, that they were not lifting them even with a single finger. They never got it, at least most of them. They never sought for forgiveness. Did Jesus ever forgive them? What I'm getting at here is that for for Jesus to suddenly forgive them on the cross is a massive change of pattern. If that's in fact what he was doing. But we have to look at this once again in the moment. And what did he actually say? Did he say, like he said to the paralytic and to the woman with the, who wiped his feet with her hair, you're forgiven of your sins? No. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. Does that echo somebody else in the scriptures? Of course it does. In the book of Acts, the first martyr, Stephen, while he's being stoned, he says, forgive them for this trespass, or something akin to that. Is he forgiving them all their sins? Well, Stephen certainly couldn't do that. He's not God. He's not Christ. But Jesus, in the moment, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. In other words, forgive them they're ignorant. What is he asking for forgiveness uh, for from the Father? Forgiveness for their ignorance. Ignorance for what? They know not what they're doing. What are they doing? Crucifying him. They're crucifying him. Who in that crowd would have been ignorant of what they were actually doing, the real significance of their actions in that moment? Well, in one way, you could say everybody, including the Pharisees, sure. Other people that were pulled along there jeering at him, and most of all, the centurions. Did they know that they were sacrificing or that they were crucifying in that moment, killing in that moment the Son of God himself? It is after the death of Christ that one of the centurions admits that this must have been the Son of God. But until that point, even he, perhaps, was ignorant until he had really seen the whole spectacle play out. Forgive them for what they're doing here because they don't realize that they're killing the Son of God. If you want to go back, Jesus, when talking about Judas says it would have been better for him had he never been born. What's the difference? Why would it be better for a man who was knowingly betraying Christ to have never been born, but then even perhaps the Pharisees are forgiven for essentially the same act? Because Judas knew. Right? Judas wasn't ignorant. See, in the other cases, Jesus is assuming that this person knows at least on some level what they're doing. They are aware. 
They are seeking forgiveness. They are seeking Christ. They are seeking God. They're doing that which, to God, is the act of repentance, which is to come back to him. And he forgives them. Judas knowingly betraying Christ himself. It's better for him had he never been born. Doesn't that strongly imply no forgiveness for you, bro? Even in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, there is a distinction made for ignorance. If you sinned in the law of the, of the Israelites without realizing it, you could make a sacrifice and still stay in your station. If you sinned aware that it was sin, you are cut off from your people. Look it up. If you sinned knowingly, there's no forgiveness for you, bro. At least in the Old Testament, right? Judas, better for him if he had never been born. The people jeering at him at the cross, forgiven because they had no idea what they were doing. For what? All their sins? Doesn't seem like it. Forgiven for that moment and that action. Just like with Stephen. And finally, one more scripture that I know could be brought up. Paul, when he is talking, I believe, to the Corinthians, and he's pointing out that the Corinthians have been seeking justice through the local system of human beings in that society, in that nation, in that government, for infractions that the Corinthian people had done between one another in the church. And he specifically says, why don't you allow yourselves to be abused? Pretty strong language. But look at the case he's making. What Paul is saying in that reference is clearly him talking about the fact that they should be able to settle disputes among themselves without having to seek the court systems of the nation and the government around them. He makes the extreme statement, why don't you allow yourselves to be abused, specifically pointing out that it would be better if you just hurt each other and let it be, rather than seeking the government around you. That's at least one way of looking at it. But to say that Paul is really telling us that we should just let ourselves be abused by anyone, anytime, no matter what, would be a bit of a stretch. That doesn't have any connection with the argument he's clearly making. He might not have said what I was just saying, but he obviously is making a distinction between settling things among ourselves and looking to the government to settle our matters for us. This should be fairly obvious in modern day when we see just how messed up sometimes court cases can be. In fact, unfortunately, quite often. And justice is rare, real justice. So he wants us to settle our disputes among ourselves. Better to be abused than to seek the government justice system, which, by the way, will abuse us more. So let's discuss a few more scriptures before we're done here. Another one that many Christians might bring up to try to support the idea that we're supposed to give, forgive everybody is vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now there's two references to that specific verse. One is in Deuteronomy, and the other is, I think, in uh, Corinthians, Romans, somewhere around there. 
one of the epistles, whatever the case. Now, in the New Testament, the epistle version, what it specifically says is, do not seek vengeance for yourself, but leave room for wrath. Then it says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Now, before I get back to the wrath part, let's just simply talk about the idea of translating that or interpreting that to mean that since we are not supposed to seek vengeance, then obviously we're supposed to forgive everybody because we're not supposed to accrue consequences upon people for their wrong decisions, which is to mean forgiving people, right? No. Why? Because how could that be the case if it is also true that those who wield the sword wield it for God, wield it because God puts the sword in their very hands? In other words, there are those who are supposed to, who are in position to, seek consequences upon the heads of those who have done wrong. Right? What if that's you? What if that is your job? What if that is your position? What if that is your responsibility? See, in the Old Testament um, reference to it in Deuteronomy, where it says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, it is talking about people who care nothing for God, who are foreign, of, of foreign nations, probably, as far as I can tell, implying those who have done Israel wrong. There are times in the Old Testament where God actually did specifically accrue consequences upon peoples, that is, entire societies, because of things that had happened in the past. I'll get back to that in a second. The point being that if there are not to be consequences accrued to wrongdoers, including by those who have been wronged, then how can it be that the system of justice among human beings is given the credence that God himself is responsible for their existence? See, very often those systems of justice are administered through the reports of those who report the wrongdoing, which of course would include Christians. You report a crime, the police come and administer the consequence upon those wrongdoers. Now, yes, in that kind of a case, you're not seeking vengeance for yourself, and I would agree with that, of course. But you're still seeing to it the consequences accrue to the wrongdoer. Now, as far as the verse again itself in the New Testament, give room for wrath. That part of it certainly points out that we still desire for negative consequences to accrue to wrongdoers. Now, the vengeance part is something to talk about at a later time. How it is that we are not to seek vengeance and so on. I want to move on a little bit. What about what Christians say, and many others, I imagine, that we should not hold a grudge, that it's poison in our systems, and so on? I just mentioned a moment ago the God himself, in the Old Testament in particular, points out that when things are being done, they are being done because X group of people did X to the Israelites at X date. It's usually generations in the past that God is referencing to. 
If a grudge is such a poisonous thing for us to hang on to, if, in other words, the implication is that to hold on to a grudge is an evil thing to do, then God clearly has committed evil. Right? When he told Saul to eliminate the Amorites because of what they had done to Israel when they were still journeying through the wilderness, talk about holding a grudge. Now, you could call it holding a grudge, or you could call it being just. And you can point out that God was very patient. He gave them, a, gave them a great deal of time to acknowledge that what they had done was wrong, that they stood in God's own way. They had not done so, and then they're destroyed completely. At least that's the instruction to Saul, who doesn't quite carry it out. If grudges themselves are so poisonous... Again, how is it that God can hang on to them? And how about just the idea that to be unforgiving is poisonous? Okay, well, in the very parable that Jesus tells that we started out with, where the servant is forgiven and then doesn't forgive the other servant, the result of that story is that the master, the character being God, or sorry, the, yeah, the character being, being an example of God, revokes his forgiveness for the first servant because he himself was unforgiving, unmerciful. So in other words, the master, that is the God character, has unforgiveness at the end of the story. He does not forgive the man his debt, sends him to prison until every penny should be paid. If it's so bad to be unforgiving, why is it that God doesn't forgive that man, such people, that he doesn't forgive the unforgiving. See, doesn't that mean if the parable is true and if God is not being a hypocrite or holding on to some sort of venom or poison, does it not mean that it would be bad for us to forgive people who are unforgiving? Wouldn't that follow? Now, we could keep going on and on about this. Christians could come at me with, oh, but we don't uh, have the same position as God, so he is allowed to not forgive, but we have to forgive everybody because we can't handle that kind of blah, 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 blah. But at the end of the day, if it is right for us to forgive everybody, including the unrepentant, for whatever they have done wrong to us, Does God ever tell us to do things that he doesn't do himself? If God tells us that this is just, is it not just universally? If God tells us that this is right, is it not right universally? If God tells us that this is wrong, is it not wrong universally? He's either telling us what morality looks like, what virtue looks like, what justice looks like, what mercy looks like, or he isn't. And if he isn't, I know that I'd be traveling blind. I would have no idea how to see up from down, right from wrong, left from right. Does God teach us to be just or to be unjust? For us to forgive everybody who does any sort of wrong, 
and therefore, by definition, be seeing to it that no negative consequences should accrue to them as much as we are able, because they are forgiven. Are we not taking away from them the very sort of thing, the very sort of influences or incentives that may in fact lead to their repentance? The reason why we are supposed to still seek for negative consequences to accrue to evildoers is for their own sake. And that is why God still does it. That is why God is still just, even though he is the merciful one and he is the one who teaches us to be merciful. See, if it's so perfectly okay for us to forgive others without any confrontation and without any repentance or restitution from the other person, then how is it that Jesus himself gave us a guideline among Christians of how we should deal with offenses? Many of you remember it in the Gospels. He talks about the fact that if there is an offense in among the Christian family, the church family, then we are to confront him directly ourselves. And if that doesn't work, bring two witnesses. And if that doesn't work, bring the church as a whole, if I remember correctly, into the situation. And if that person is still unwilling to repent, even at that point, Jesus specifically says he is to be to you a task collector and a heathen or something to that effect. Talk about not forgiving, right? The consequences are specifically set upon this person and they're severe ones at that. That's ostracism. I've talked about that before. That is severe to the human psyche. And why is this man not given repentance, or sorry, not given forgiveness, not given mercy? Because he never acknowledged his wrong. It's exactly the model I've been talking about this entire time. At the end of the day, all of this talk of forgiving everybody, not holding on to grudges, and so on and so forth, is essentially to say, I want to love mercy, but I don't want to act justly. I don't want to follow God's example. God shows us how you continue to remember the wrongs of somebody who has not repented and accrue those consequences sooner or later. I'm not saying that that's necessarily what we're supposed to do, because we do not live eternally in this life. But he gives us the model. Do we think that we're better than God? Or that God is worse than us? What we're really saying is that we want to love mercy and love mercy and never have to confront real evil in our actual lives. The people around us, those who have wronged us, our very family members and friends, we don't want to have to face them with what they have done wrong. So we just say, eh, just forgive them. I don't want to have to confront. I don't want to actually have to try to improve the way that people live. I don't want to do hard things. God gives us the model of what it looks like to do hard things. But we emphasize one side of scripture to try to make it look as if it's just mercy for everybody. 
If we were to take that to its logical conclusion, and that is in fact the way that God behaves, which it isn't, but let's just hypothetically say that it is, then we would have to believe in universalism. Because if God forgives everybody, then by definition, everybody is going to heaven. It does not make sense to me. So there's still one more contention, of course, that people will want to bring up. Okay, then, if it's true that we're not supposed to forgive everybody, but only forgive those who genuinely seek, repent, seek restitution, then what do we do with what is, within, what is inside of us because of wrongdoing that has been done to us? That my friends, will be the topic of the next episode. Until next time.